Hello and welcome to the Northgate Podcast, where we aim to bring people closer to Christ, build them up, and empower them to go out into the world and make a positive impact. With our inspiring content and engaging discussions, this podcast serves as a beacon of hope and spiritual growth for all its listeners. The purpose of the Northgate Podcast can be summed up by our mission to bring people to Christ, build them up in that relationship, and send them out. This motto encapsulates our dedication to help individuals discover the transformative power of Christ's love, nurture their faith, and develop a strong foundation in their spiritual journey. Now here is today's message. All right, good morning, everyone. Man. It's a good full house. You guys sound great. That was awesome worship together. I just love this season. Said it last week too, but I, I love this season. I love sharing in it together as a church family. We're in our third week of our Advent series, Three Candles, so it's really easy to follow along. And we've been looking at the statements from the Bible of why Jesus came to earth. In the 1988 classic movie, Naked Gun, Lieutenant Frank Drebin, played by Leslie Nielsen, is asked the question, who are you and how did you get in here? And some of you know his answer is, I'm a locksmith and I'm a locksmith. Right? Makes sense. Well, we've been looking at the words in the life of Jesus and we're asking, who are you and why did you come here? And in short, Jesus' answer is, I'm the Messiah and I'm the Messiah. So far, we've looked at some statements in the Gospels where Jesus said, I came to. In week one, Jesus came to be a light in a dark world. In week two, we saw that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And today we're going to see that Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets. Jesus is the fulfillment. Now, fulfillment's an interesting word. And what was interesting to me with this word is that there's two primary meanings of how we would use it uh, in the context of how we'd use it today. The first one is fulfillment, the achievement of something desired, promised, or predicted. So we said, the Bills winning the Super Bowl was the fulfillment of everything I ever hoped for as a football fan, right? Maybe a sentence we'll say sometime, maybe not. That would be one. Two, fulfillment, the meeting of, or, uh, the meeting of a requirement or condition. So the Amazon Fulfillment Center shipped out the package I ordered. It arrived on my porch in less than 48 hours. In that case, fulfillment means they've met the requirement or condition of my purchase. They've fulfilled their end of the bargain. I gotta tell you guys, I was doing so well. I did not buy anything for myself from November 7th through December 9th, which is like an extraordinary length of time for me. And then I just fell off the wagon on December 9th and I bought myself a few things. So pray for my wife and the other people that have to buy me gifts at Christmas. It is a hard thing to do. So when I say that Jesus was the fulfillment, what's interesting is it very much applies to both definitions of the word. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of God's entire plan for humankind, for the world, for each of us individually. He's the main character. He is the redemptive hero in the account of life. His face is on the movie poster. Jesus being born on earth as a baby, the actual Messiah coming to the earth was the achievement of something desired, promised and predicted, as we heard in that first definition. The Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, is full of all three of those things. Something desired. They desired so deeply for the Messiah to come. 
Now the Jewish people, God's chosen people, had a much different picture of how the Messiah would arrive, of what he would look like, of what he would do once he was here. So sadly, as much as they desired it, the majority of them missed it. Something promised. God had promised through his prophets and his word that the Messiah would come. And then something predicted. Those same prophets on the pages of scripture had predicted, obviously with some help from an omniscient God, that the Messiah would come to earth and the exact conditions that that would happen in. So the arrival of Jesus on the planet is a fulfillment because it's something desired, promised, and predicted. But the life that Jesus lived once he came here also qualified as a fulfillment and that it met all the necessary requirements and conditions. Time and experience had made it very clear that the Old Testament law was not working. It was not sufficient. The system had failed, right? It's not happening. It's not bringing closeness to God. We're just, I'm gonna stop real quick and, and pray. And just, Father God, I ask that you'd be present. Lord, we pray that your presence would be here. God, your comfort would be here, your strength. God, just uh, your protection. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So that had been, right, the time and experience, it had just made it clear. It made it clear to us, you know what? This isn't working, right? The system had failed. The system was not bringing closeness with God. What the system was bringing was an obsession with the law. And so we needed a better solution. We needed an ultimate solution, a once and for all solution. The Old Testament had so many laws and requirements and conditions, and it turns out no one was actually truly capable of keeping all those, let alone the heart behind those. I told you last week, and you remember how many laws and commandments there are in the Old Testament? 613, right? That's a lot, that's a lot. And so because of that, being God's people, it became all about trying to keep all those rules at all times. The list of rules actually became the entire point. It wasn't about being close with God. It was about a competition to see who was the best rule keeper. And listen, I like structure. I'm a very structured person. But the downside with that is that if you fall too in love with the routine and structure, it takes priority over everything else. And in this case, it will take priority over the relationship. If we say, hey, I'm gonna have a quiet time with God, right? They keep talking about that at church. It's important, I know I gotta do it. I'm gonna do 20 minutes. You're like, okay, sounds good, right? It's a good thing. And then you get up and you start your 20 minutes and you set a timer and, and you spend some time praying and you're reading your Bible and you're hearing from God and the alarm goes off. You're like, 20 minutes, I'm done, right? All right, God, see you tomorrow. And maybe some days you're like 15 minutes in and you finished your reading and you've connected with God and you're like, well, I have five more minutes, God, so we'll just, we'll just stay here, right? You've become more enamored with the structure and with the rules than with the actual relationship you're trying to invest in. I saw this, a camp I went to growing up. They told us, hey, you gotta have a journal, right? And when you open it up and you say, okay, December 17th, all right, John chapter one, and you just take some notes from what you read. And then the next day, December 18th, John chapter two, well, then you're, you know, Tuesday, you sleep in a little bit because it's a Tuesday, and so you don't get to it. And so what they said to do is when you come back to the journal, you write December 19th, big capital letters, black marker, God did not mean enough to me to do devotions today. And that's what they taught us as kids. And I remember I went home and I did that. And I'll tell you what, I wrote that once and then I never opened that journal again, right? Because I, was, I didn't wanna see it, I didn't like it. And when we live like that, the point is totally lost. It's about spending time with God, getting to know who he is and hearing from him, hearing what he has for the day ahead and for your life. 
The same thing would be true if you were really legalistic about any other relationship. I mean, if you are a couple with a set date night, that is great. But if your spouse is throwing up and they feel terrible and you're like, hey, we got reservations, Friday night's date night, let's go, right? You've fallen more in love with the rule than with building the relationship. And that's exactly where things stood when Jesus entered into the world on the first Christmas. Because if we go back, I mean, all the way back to the very beginning before creation, it's just this vast nothingness. But God is there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's a desire for more. There's a desire to make people in their image. And this is one of the ways that we know that God is inherently relational. He's a relational God. You know why? Because he had the whole world to himself. I mean, doesn't that kind of sound nice? Kind of sounds, it sounds decent. But he decided to make human beings and that goes well for like seven to 10 minutes and then we screw it up. Because we're sinful, we're broken right out of the gate as human beings, it's who we are. I mean, there are times, more so when our, our kids were little, but our house would be especially chaotic. I look at Amy, I'd be like, I mean, as chaotic as a house can get when you only have girls, right? Thoughts and prayers to you guys raising boys out there. Um, but I'd look at Amy and I'd say, we had this entire house to ourselves, right? Remember, it's just you and me, right? We did this. And I wonder if that's how God felt when he made people and then he watches them screw it up. But the reason that God did it is because he desired to have a relationship with us. He wanted people to be in relationship with him. That's why we're here. He had a good gig going on prior to that. But he's a relational God, so he makes people to have a relationship with him. And it doesn't really go that well for a while. Because in addition to being a relational God, he's also holy and he's righteous. So the things that need to be done in order to have a relationship with him are pretty intense. And as I mentioned last week from Acts 15, Peter says it's too big of a weight for him to bear. It's too big of a weight for the other people at the Jerusalem council to bear. It was too big of a weight for their ancestors to bear. The list of rules was just too much to keep. And most of all, the list of rules became the priority when what God truly wanted all along was a relationship with us. And so here comes Jesus. When the set time had fully come, Jesus came to earth to change a list of rules into a lasting relationship. Jesus came to shake us out of that legalism. Not that the rules were bad, but through Jesus, the heart behind the rule would become even more important than strict adherence to the rule itself. We see this when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount, which we'll look at a part of in a little bit. He says things like, well, the rule says that you aren't to murder, but the heart behind the rule says you shouldn't even hate people. Or he says, well, the rule has always told you you should not commit adultery. I'm telling you the heart behind the rule says you shouldn't even look lustfully at someone you're not married to. Jesus, he requires us to examine if we're more adherent to the rule or to the heart behind the rule. And we see that the Pharisees and the other religious people of Jesus' day, they become much more enamored with fulfilling the letter of the law, right? With towing the line than they were with the heart behind the law. I mean, that's exactly what happened with Sabbath laws. Sabbath was designed by God to give us the rest that we need. But instead of it being about the rest that our bodies and our minds and our souls crave and need, it became about how strictly you could keep the various Sabbath laws. It drives, or at least it used to drive, my mother-in-law nuts that I would mow the lawn on Sunday. But guess what? 
Sunday isn't a Sabbath for me. Sunday is a work day. My Sabbath day is Friday. Friday is my day of rest and restoration. A lot of times I'll mow the lawn Thursday night after work just because I don't want to be tempted to be any more productive than I absolutely have to be on Friday. So for me not to mow my lawn on Sunday would be legalism, right? It would be me being more concerned about the appearance of Sabbath rest than actually getting Sabbath rest. I mean, I'm out there with my tattoos mowing my lawn on a Sunday. How will anyone know I love Jesus? And if you've ever experienced a setting that prioritized rules more than they should, you know exactly what I mean. Environments more based on the legalism of what to do instead of the, the heart behind what to do doesn't tend to turn out well. That's why in raising our kids, we've tried to tell them, yeah, hey, here are the rules, but we also want them to understand the heart and the why behind it. I mean, you can just tell your kids, you can't hang out with this person, right? That's a thing you can say as parents. Uh, it goes worse for you. The older they get, you have less control over that. But you can say you can't hang out with this person. But what you really want to do is teach them to evaluate the character of people, of the people around them, and then make a choice to surround themselves with people of good character. That's a lot more effective. I remember one of our girls getting an invitation to a birthday party from kind of a rough kid, you know, and she's going through it. And listen, she wasn't going to that party. She wasn't. But she's like, oh, we're like, well, what do you think you should do. And she's thinking through it. She's like, it's really nice of him to invite me. I'm kind of surprised he invited me. I'm not sure that's the kind of person I really spend a lot of time with, though. And I like, kind of worked it out and said, I, I think I'm going to tell him, thank you for inviting me, but I'm not able to attend. And I'm like, right. Yeah, you were never going. But she got to the right answer by herself. And I feel like that's a lot more effective. And that's really the heart behind what Jesus is going to say in this section of scripture I want to primarily focus on today in Matthew 5. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, hands down the best and most influential message that was ever preached. Jesus says, you made it all about the what, and I came to make it about the why. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And there is our, uh, our key phrase there, Jesus saying this week, I came to fulfill the law and prophets. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law and prophets. He didn't come to discard them. He didn't come so we could discard the Old Testament. He came to build on it and to fulfill them. And yes, I get it. There are some problematic and troubling parts of the Old Testament, but please don't throw the whole thing out. Jesus clearly says that is not why he came. He says, don't use me as an excuse to say the law is dead. The law isn't going away. Jesus came to fulfill and build on everything that the Old Testament said. So you might be more drawn to the New Testament, when people are like, hey, I'm starting to read my Bible. I started in Genesis. And I'm like, man, you're going to have to plow through like Leviticus and Numbers, right? You're, he you're headed to some hard times, right? It's like Donner's Pass going through there. Um, I'm like, why don't you start a John, right? And it's not just because it's my name. Like, start a John or read a, read a gospel. Start in the New Testament. You, I prefer to read the New Testament. I focus more there. But we always do an Old Testament series. We always want to make sure we're not discarding that because Jesus makes that really clear. It's not why he came. He came to fulfill the Old Testament and to build on it. 
Without the Old Testament, we don't get the context of why it's so important for Jesus to come as he did and for Jesus to do what he did. It's like starting a movie halfway through and you're like, who's the main character? Which one's the main? Why am I invested in their mission? I, I don't know. I'm supposed to be into this. But when we get the entire picture, it changes everything. Only then do we understand how important everything that Jesus did was. Only then do we grasp why it was so important for Jesus to pay it all. Because then we know how the Old, Test the Old Testament system had failed, how it wasn't working, how it was bringing this obsession with the law, and that Jesus came. And instead of just tearing it all up and throwing it away and starting over, he fulfilled it. He didn't just create the new covenant. He fulfilled the old covenant in the process of doing that. And in doing that, he completely fulfilled all of the prophecy of the Old Testament. Now, I just wanna look at a couple pieces of prophecy that Jesus fulfilled conservatively. Conservatively, on the very low end, Jesus filled, fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Here are just a few. The Messiah would be a Nazarene but he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, because we've heard the story so many times, we don't really think about how crazy that is, but this is a time where people didn't travel much. And to say, all right, you're gonna be born here, but you're from here, that's like not a small deal. When uh, we had to travel for Amy's brother's wedding to Nebraska, and she was like 34 weeks pregnant, 35 weeks pregnant with our youngest daughter. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if she was born in Nebraska? She'd be like, I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'd be like, oh, where'd you grow up? Rochester. And you're like, it's a cool story as opposed to like, all three of our girls are born in Rochester. That's not really that exciting. Amy did not think it was exciting. I was like, what if when we're flying home, you're carrying a baby? She's like, will you stop? Will you stop? And she was born when we we're home. But those are like big odds. That's not like a small thing that he was, would be a Nazarene, but would be born in this other place in Bethlehem. The Messiah would be born to a virgin. Also, very rare, like one time rare, right? One time rare. The Messiah would descend from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, part of fulfilling that whole line and the promises made to them. The Messiah would teach in parables. The Messiah would be betrayed by his own people. And the Messiah would be resurrected from the dead and ascend to heaven, also a one time on that. So because of all that, when we read and we study the Old Testament and we see what happened with the life of Jesus, we see that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus completely fulfilled all of the predictive prophecy. Every single piece of prophecy about who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. There was nothing that was like, well, he fulfilled most of it. It didn't say he'd be born in Jericho, but otherwise he got it, right? No, he fulfilled every single piece of predictive prophecy. Two, he fulfilled all the moral and legal demands that people had been unable to live up to on their own, frequently despite their best efforts. People had been unable to do that, but Jesus did it. And three, because of that, he fulfilled the penalty of the law that's meticulously laid out in the Old Testament. He was the perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice that was required because he was the, the substitute for the doves and the lambs and the bulls that were sacrificed before him. And all three of those key areas were completely fulfilled perfectly by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's such good news for us because as Paul says to the Galatian church, righteousness could not be achieved through the law. It was impossible. On our own, we were helpless to live up to that standard. We have a track record of seeing it through the entire Old Testament. Here's what Paul says to the church in Galatia, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul says, hey, if we could do it with the law, if the law would have been good enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die, right? He died for nothing, but 
we know it couldn't be achieved through the law, and we know that he didn't die for nothing. We know that his death changed everything, and it shifted that goal from keeping a list of rules to building a lasting relationship. And we'll see that even more. Let's go back to Matthew 5, the next two verses from where we left off. Jesus continues and says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you, certainly, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the law is now free from those restraints. And that's exactly what we needed because we couldn't do it on our own. And so that all sounds great until he sends, puts the part in there at the end, he throws that in and says, unless your righteousness surpasses the level of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't go to heaven. And that sounds like a really high bar. That sounds like an impossible bar to clear because no one was better at keeping the rules than these guys. But that's the entire point Jesus is trying to make. Jesus is saying, you don't need to keep the rules as well as the Pharisees keep the rules. What you need to do is get the heart behind the rules better than they ever did or would. And in saying that, Jesus changes the entire measuring stick. It's like a professor totally changing the grading system for a class, which works out really well for us because we were all failing the class miserably. The professor looks at the grade of the class and sees that at best anyone has a 30 and says, we're gonna need to grade on a curve. And the curve is the grace of Jesus that Jesus came to bring and to embody. Jesus comes and he changes what we need to do to be seen as holy and righteous in the eyes of God. And consequently, keeping the law is no longer the standardness of holiness in the eyes of God. There needed to be a perfect sacrifice. The church term you would hear for this is sufficient atonement. If you ever heard that, which it sounds more, it sounds fancier than it needs to. It just means that he, the, the sacrifice of Jesus would be perfect for all time, for every man, woman, and child because he had kept the law perfectly and he had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy completely and he had paid the penalty for our sin for all time. Because of that, the law would no longer be used as the measuring stick to judge us. Now instead, Romans 10:4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This is who Jesus is. This is why he came to earth. This is what he came to accomplish, to be the culmination of the law, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the sufficient atonement for our sins. So now everyone who believes in Jesus can be righteous. Something that had been impossible to do forever now is attainable for every single one of us, for everyone who believes. But before I just send you out and you say, all right, well, great, let's just start living however we want to, right? That's what I heard, right? No rules, just right. It's an Outback Steakhouse now. It's not that. Let's make sure that you don't say, hey, the point of Jesus fulfilling the law means there are no more rules now. Everyone can do just whatever they feel like, right? Everyone, just do what makes your heart happy. It's some of the worst advice people can ever give, right? The heart is deceitful and wicked. Jesus and the New Testament are clear and consistent on sin, in fact, as I told you earlier, after he explains all this to his listeners in Matthew 5, he goes to raise the bar on sin. He raises the bar from don't kill people to don't even hate people. He raises the bar from love your neighbors to even love your enemies. He's like, love your neighbors, that's easy. Love your enemies. He tells people 
that fulfilling the law doesn't mean that there are now no rules. It doesn't mean that God's not still holy and righteous. He is, he doesn't change. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to live a life that's pleasing to God, but with Jesus' fulfillment of the law, what we do shouldn't change as much as why we do it. It doesn't change what we do, but it does change the why. When I first got my driver's license, now this was way back in the 1900s, as my kids would say, uh, when I got my driver's license, you had a six-month probation, and you couldn't get any tickets during that, or I, th- I think you were done, or right? I don't think you ever got to drive again. It's what they made it sound like. I got through that six-month probation, and then on the first day after, I got my first ticket. I grew up in Perry, and, and I am pro-law enforcement. This is not an anti-law enforcement statement, but there are a lot of police officers in Perry, and they will pull you over if you're going like 32 and a 30. You know, if you like half the people, last night I had people come up that are like, I got a ticket in Perry. I was like, I know, we all did, right? You leave the corral, you go watch a movie, you're driving 30 for like an hour just because you know 32, they're getting you. And so I got a ton of tickets, right? I just, I wasn't, I had the ability to drive and pass the test. I did not have the maturity yet to drive, which is a hard thing to decipher. I got six tickets from the day after my six month probation until I finally went to college and, and left that area. Because in my mind, I wanted to drive as fast as I could at all times without getting caught, right? That was my goal. Now, obviously, I had to make some adjustments because I kept getting caught. So I had to do some things differently because I wanted to keep my license. I wanted to keep my insurance. I wanted to be able to drive. I did something super noble. I started to follow the speed limit. But as I got older and and perhaps a little more mature, I realized, actually, I want to drive safely to keep myself safe, to keep the people in my car safe, to keep the people in the other car safe, right? It's not about getting caught or not getting caught. It's about doing the right and wise and safe thing. It's not about what I'm doing. It's the why behind it. And that's exactly what Jesus fulfilling the law did for us. It's not that we should live differently now. It's not that we should ignore God's wisdom that he's given to us for our lives. It's not that we should just do whatever we want. It's that we should be doing it with totally different motivations. In the old covenant, the approach said, do everything that God asks of you, and then he will love you. But in the new covenant says, God loves you. So do what he asks of you. And plus, what he's asking of you is the wisest and best thing for you because he knows you and loves you. Totally changes the motivation, changes the why, not the what. You know where I saw a similar thing happen? In my bedtime as an adult. Remember you were a kid and your parents made you go to bed and it was the worst. You were convinced everything good happened like after that time, right? They brought out the good food and the good desserts. Some of that is true. They watched the good stuff on TV, right? And you got to go to bed and you miss it all. I remember being a kid and saying, when I'm an adult, I'm going to stay up as late as I want. And now I am definitely an adult. And unless there's a really great sporting event on, I'm going to bed at like 9, 9.30, right? The exact same time my parents made me go to bed as a kid. What I did as a kid didn't change, but the why behind it changed. As a kid, there was an authority figure telling me, you need to go to bed now. As an adult, I'm saying, I'm tired, and I don't want to be tired all day tomorrow, so I'm going to go to bed. I've lived on the wrong side of legalism, and it's exhausting. And it doesn't work. And you know what's great? God knows legalism doesn't work. That's why he sent his son. That's why he sent the embodiment of grace so that we could live free from the constraints that had dragged God's people down under that old covenant.
So the gift that I would love for you to receive this Christmas is the knowledge that God loves you completely and fully and unconditionally. Walk around this Christmas season knowing there's nothing you can do to make him love you more and there's nothing you're gonna do that's gonna make him love you less. No matter how you messed up, you're sitting here today and God says, you see him? You see her? Yeah, I made that one. I made her. I love her so much. She doesn't, she doesn't always get it right. She doesn't always get it right, but I love her and there's nothing I wouldn't do to show her that. And when you receive a love like that, such a pure love, a love that is not driven by you having to earn it, doesn't that motivate you to want to live for him? Doesn't that motivate you to want to get up today and tomorrow and the next day and say, God, I give you my life. I'm going to follow you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me, whether I get it right today or when I mess it up. I give you the day in front of me, and I want everyone to see by how I live how incredibly loved I am by you. It's the greatest motivation you could ever have to live a holy, set-apart life, to live differently than the rest of the world around you. There's absolutely no better motivation than love. That's why God sent his son to us in the first place. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your love. God, I thank you for a love that we don't have to earn, a love we don't have to deserve. God, we don't and we won't and you sent Jesus anyway. Lord, I pray that we would feel that love and we would feel the freedom that comes from that love. That God, we would take off the pressure that we've put on ourselves or maybe other people have put on us or church environments have put on us to be perfect and would instead live in the freedom of the grace that Jesus came to bring. Oh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. And we thank you that for us, everything is different because of that. Lord, help us to live in that love and that freedom and in that grace for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. God doesn't want people who pursue perfection through the law. He wants people who pursue a relationship with him through his son. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That is who Jesus is. So go today in the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have a great week. We will see you next weekend for Christmas Eve, 10 a.m. family service, 7 and 11 p.m. candlelight and communion. We'll see you then. Thank you everyone for tuning in and being part of the Northgate podcast today. Your support and engagement have truly been incredible. If you like what you hear, then please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Northgate podcast. It's your enthusiasm and continued support that keeps us motivated and inspired to creating meaningful content that resonates with our listeners. So thanks again. Thanks again.